0: Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey, everyone. Just so you know, Sagar and I are recording our discussion slash Q&A open episode for everyone that will come out tomorrow. We're going to reflect on the Trump announcement, the midterm results, all those good things. If you'd like to submit your questions, you still have a little bit of time before we record this afternoon, email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com comment on the Substack, or if you're a Supercast subscriber, you can go leave your Q&A at the AMA section. It's also a good time to shout out the Supercast. If you'd like to support our work, go to realignment.supercast.com or click the link in the show notes. On to today's episode. I really enjoyed speaking with Professor Fred Logevall about his book, JFK in the American Century, 1917 to 1956. Back in March. I will provide a link to that in the show notes if you did not get a chance to listen during the deluge of comment during the Ukraine conflict. In the spirit of that episode, I'm speaking with Professor William Hinboden about his new book, The Peacemaker Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World. On the brink. It's really about applying lessons from the nineteen eighties and Reagan's rise in the nineteen seventies to the challenges we're facing today. Definitely let me know which other presidencies I should cover on the podcast. I'm looking to do an episode on Grover Cleveland, which fun fact, he is the only American president to lose re-election, but then come back four years later. Maybe that has resonance with what's happening today in the world. Hope you all enjoy this episode. And obviously, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting the podcast. William Inburden, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you, Marshall. Great to be with you. Great to speak with you, too. Let's just start here. There are a lot of different competing and often contradictory assessments or conceptions of Ronald Reagan. On the one hand, America could say that he's the sunny optimist who sees us as a city on a hill. On the other hand, if you're coming from the left, you'd say that he's a neoliberal who brought market fundamentalism to America, culminating in the 2008 economic recession, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How would you sum up just the public conception? We're getting into your conception of Reagan. What is the public conception of Reagan right now?
1: So, yeah, I think you're exactly right that there are competing narratives out there. Uh, and some of this will depend on what your politics are. Some of it, frankly, will depend on your age as well. Uh, you know, some people who have firsthand memories of uh, living under the Reagan years, as opposed to those who are, you know, later generations who were born, born after him. And then some will depend on what issues you focus on. So for me, I primarily focus on national security. And within the national security community, you know, there are debates about Reagan, but they're mostly debates about his national security legacy. Others, of course, who focus on domestic policy or on social policy, uh, might uh, also have their own different sets of debates, if you will, uh, such as on his domestic economic policies, as you as you mentioned. That said, um, it does seem if you look at things like crude instruments, like uh, ratings of presidents, you know, done by scholars, uh, Reagan has been steadily climbing in overall public uh, assessment of his presidency, where even uh, more liberal scholars uh, will usually see him as, you know, a consequential president, uh, a pretty great one. They're still reluctant to put him in the pantheon of all time greats of, of course, but a sense of look, you know, this is a two term presidency, he leaves office, with high approval ratings. His vice president is elected as his successor, almost a third term. The American economy was in strong shape. The Cold War ends peacefully. You've got the global expansion of democracy uh, among previous right-wing authoritarian military governments in Asia and Latin America, uh, it's a it's it's a pretty good record overall. Uh, and and even his critics would have to concede, yes, he leaves office with the country in much better shape than he arrived. Now they then want to debate: well, uh, was that accredited his policies, or did he just get lucky? Uh, or and were there you know negative downstream effects uh, or unintended consequences of some of those policies? And you can debate that stuff, but um. I I don't have a lot of patience uh, for ones who want to you know blame the 2008 financial crisis on a president who had left office 30 years earlier. So,
0: for sure. And your conception of him then, or 20 years
1: the, earlier. Sorry, yeah.
0: No, for sure. And then to the title of the actual book, your conception of him is as the
1: peacemaker. Explain mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, I got to say, I get that title from Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, So in the epilogue, there's a very touching scene where uh, Gorbachev pays a surprise visit to Reagan's memorial uh, service. Reagan has just died. His body is lying in state in the the casket, in the Capitol Rotunda. And Gorbachev flies from Moscow to pay a surprise visit, to pay tribute to him. And then, you know, says to the the press, you know, Reagan was a a great peacemaker. Um, And Reagan had wanted to see himself as a peacemaker as well. But the fact, that his, if you will, main rival, uh the you know, this his Soviet counterpart, Mikhail Gorbachev, called him that. I thought, uh, I think that that carries a lot of weight. But, you know, peacemaker itself is a you know very uh, ambi- ambiguous, somewhat amorphous term. And in Reagan's um Inception, he very much wanted to bring the Cold War to a peaceful end. He wanted to bring peace to the world. He wanted to make peace, but he wanted to do it on terms favorable to the United States and favorable to the cause of freedom. Uh, and so that's why his mantra was peace through strength. And he focused, you know, on restoring America's military strength, restoring our economic strength, restoring our diplomatic standing. Um, he's very focused on diplomacy. For but for him, it's how do you have effective, strong diplomacy? You know, backed by military power and economic power, and and more moral capital as well um so uh, so i was comfortable uh t- titling the book the peacemaker if that's the you know the tribute that his you know main adversary uh paid paid him on his on his death but uh you know some early responses to the book have um been skeptical of the title uh and i'd say well you know hope you read the book and then see if it see if it convinces you, or at least read the epilogue which which uh lays out some of the themes of the of the title
0: for sure Question to ask then is, especially for younger listeners, such as myself, born in 1992. So Mm -hmm. even after I was born, the world of 1979, 1980 was already moving deeply into the past on a couple of different levels. Describe the international scene Mm of 1970 to nineteen 1979 to 1980, when Reagan obviously is about to come into office in that next year.
1: Yeah, no, this is a great question, Marshall. And I, um, I myself, you know, I just turned 50. So I, I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s. And so these are my, you know, I'm in junior high and high school during the Reagan years. Uh, so these are my formative years. Uh, and so I have, you know, first ten memories of this, but it's interesting to, in doing the book to go back and do historical research, uh, and try to you know, recreate that time, but also compare it with my own, my own, my own memories. Um, so the late 1970s were a terrible time for the United States. Um, you know, our country's had a rough run the last decade or so. Uh, you know, I'm not getting political here, but just with, you know, the economic crisis and failures in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and a divided country, right? I mean, wherever you fall politically, no one would say the United States is doing really, really well right now. It was much worse in the late 1970s. Um, our economy was a mess. Uh, you had uh, the phenomenon of um, stagflation, which was high unemployment combined with runaway inflation. Uh, we uh, you had, you know, Uh, miles long gas lines at every gas station because the United States was producing very little of our own oil and gas. We were reliant on the middle East for oil and gas. And, um, uh, the Arab countries, OPEC, had imposed a massive oil embargo on the United States, frustrated of our support for support for Israel. So uh, it just makes us look weak. You've got 55 Americans held hostage in Iran by the radical, uh, you know, Iranian regime, which had just taken taken power, and the Soviet Union appeared to be ascendant. Uh, uh, communist regimes had won victories in South Vietnam, in Ethiopia, in Angola, in Nicaragua. Uh, communism is ascendant around the world. Uh, and then the Soviets had just invaded Afghanistan and seemed to be you know, f- further on the march. And so the United States seemed weak, uh, demoralized, uh, d- decrepit, um, and our country had just lost faith in ourselves. Um, I mean, one other thing it just bears mentioning on um, the office of the presidency was really weakened. Um, in 1980, it had been two decades since the United States had had a single president complete two terms. Uh, people thought the office of the presidency itself was broken. So Eisenhower had been the last two-term president, uh, way before both of our time. Uh, after that, Kennedy had been killed by an assassin. LBJ was crippled by Vietnam and didn't run for re-election. Nixon has the Watergate scandal, resigns in disgrace. His unelected successor Ford tries to run for election is defeated by Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter then gets defeated by Reagan. Um, so those are all the challenges that that Reagan Reagan inherited. It seems like the Soviet Union is winning and America is losing, and there's no way forward for America to to win again. I want to do a quick sidebar because this mm-hmm. anecdote from the book does the useful
0: task of helping us blend together the past, present, and future, which is kind of difficult in a history interview. I don't want to just like get you to recount, okay, then what happened, and then what happened, yeah. and then what happened, uh, purchase yeah. the book, everyone. You speak about a how Brands, um, great guest was on the podcast earlier this year, quote, describing how the 1970s, funnily mm-hmm. enough, within that period of of difficulty you're describing, there actually were a couple long-term trends that mm-hmm. signified that the environment that Reagan, George H.W. Bush, then Bill Clinton right, were to preside over was going to move much more in America's favor. So let's talk about that for a second, because I think that dynamic of there are these short-term disasters, but mm-hmm. focusing on long-term strength should be useful for folks looking at the 2020s. So talk mm-hmm. about the, that 1970s, like what were the long-term trends that mattered? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is also really important because these long-term trends. Which Hal's—I'm uh, glad you've had him on the show. He's a dear friend of mine and a great colleague. Uh, he, uh, he does a good job of highlighting, and I try to point out in the book is that even when things seem terrible and things really were were terrible for for the United States, there can be some deeper trends, some some shoots, you know, some rays of hope, right? Some signs signs of optimism uh, beneath the surface. And because Reagan was from California, because he's an innate optimist, and California is where a number of these trends were starting. Uh, he was able to capitalize in these so first you've got um with uh, Silicon Valley and the uh the advance in in semiconductors uh and and then Apple computer you've got this uh, constellation of technology Innovations which are uh, about to transform the American economy you know to move us more towards a knowledge economy incredible boom and in productivity but also are going to be transformative for the world as you know the Communications Revolution uh, the beginnings of globalization and I don't mean this as kind of like Davos Elites but rather just uh, lowering barriers for um, for commerce, uh, for sharing of ideas, for bringing people together, and for undermining the power of tyrannical governments—that's a really, really key key part of this. Of these these new technologies, those had been developed in late late 1970s, um, and Reagan you know, recognizes those, and he and his economic and foreign policy teams take a, take advantage of those. Then you also had some uh, larger uh, structural economic trends. Um, uh, you know, led led partly by Paul Volcker and tightened tightened monetary supply, restoring some sense of value to the dollar. It's short term pain with the really high interest rates, but at last, you know, realigns the dollar with a real sense of value, and in turn restores the dollar as you know the primary global reserve uh, currency. It, it the dollar had also had a tough tough run in the '70s. It takes a while for that to um, translate into real gains for average American pocketbooks and restoring purchasing purchasing power. As one And then um, the rise of transnational uh, NGOs and human rights movements, Um, because, you know, a lot of the story in my book, of course, is Reagan's success in helping bring down Soviet communism and the Iron Curtain. But also during this time, and this is a really important part of the story, the Reagan administration is supporting and encouraging right-wing authoritarian military governments to democratize, uh, to, to do so peacefully. And I know democracy promotion has gotten a bad name in recent years and seems like it hasn't had successes. But because Reagan and his team were able to recognize these new trends of, of student groups, of activist groups, of NGOs behind the Iron Curtain, but also in places like South Korea and Taiwan and Philippines, which were American allies, but right-wing military dictators ships at the time uh, as their people were uh, developing, new organizations of citizen action and activism uh, and uh, and wanting more uh, voice in their own government, uh, wanting to have the possibility of self-government, American policy was able to to capitalize on on that as well. So even though my book focuses on the leadership uh, and agency that Reagan and his team showed, they absolutely uh, benefited from some favorable structural trends in in the international system. But those trends can be there and you can have a bad policymaker who ignores them or tries to reverse them too, so that's why you know, I want to give them some credit. I, I will say one other thing, just to connect our previous, um, uh, the 1970s until now. Reagan's campaign slogan, when he launched his presidential campaign in November of 1979, was "Wait for it, make America great again." So um, I think we've heard that one before, but uh, uh, anyway, that's what his slogan was. So that that captures that captures the um, the despair of the time, but also the the hope for better days. Make America great again.
0: For sure. And I'm curious about something you refer to as innate optimism. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think about the idea that sometimes innate optimism is a good thing. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a bad thing. Is that an example of innate optimism meeting a specific moment in American history where you have both the international scene, the set of ideas that Reagan embodies, but then also those long-term structural changes? Because one could say, well, Jeb Bush tried to do a optimistic 2015 campaign but that didn't quite meet the valence of that political moment to the same degree so just talk about optimism and mm-hmm. how you think about its relationship to policymaking and opportunities in the political sphere
1: sure yeah there's a, a very important question a few strands i want to bring together there and describe it because reagan absolutely was an optimist but i want to describe what it what it meant uh it first of all um, some of it just comes from his own very hard scrabble personal background so he grows up um you know, lower middle class at best, really quite impoverished at, at worst. At times, that his family would go hungry. His dad was a raging alcoholic, couldn't keep a job, was really abusive. You know, very dysfunctional family family home. Uh, you know, a, a lot of moves. Um, this is not a stable, nurturing environment. And yet, partly because of his mother's Christian faith, partly just because of of Reagan's character, and certainly through a lot of his his own effort, he was able to you rise up to you know considerable professional success. Uh, you know, as a as a ho- Hollywood actor. You know so he leaves you know the rural midwest where he's from he you know discovers new life and new possibilities in california and for him it was his personal story but also it uh, his personal success showed the possibilities of america right so he very much believes in in upper, upward upward mobility um but uh, sometimes this optimism could get him in trouble in office, is when he would be somewhat deluded about some of his bad policies. You know, the classic one being the Iran-Contra scandal when he tries to trade uh, arms for hostages to the Iranian regime. And. Uh, you know, it doesn't work and it breaks the law. And it's it's very, very demoralizing. Um, and that's where sometimes his optimism would just make him make him rather deluded. But to your question about his optimism in the political moment, um, it's a very interesting counterfactual. What if Reagan had actually won in 1976? Because uh, he didn't hmm. run for president in 1976. He challenges Ford in the primary. It's really it comes down to the Republican convention. It's the last truly contested political convention in American uh, in American political history. Uh, Reagan loses by just a Few delegates. What if he would have actually won? I can't really say. Um, but to speculate, uh, I'm not saying he would have had a failed presidency, but I don't think the moment was quite right in 1976 uh for his preferred policies uh and his optimism and hope for a better future. It seemed like so many of the negative structural forces uh still had to play themselves out. Uh so uh so You know, perhaps we can say in God's providence or as the turn of fortune or fate uh, works, you know, whatever your worldview is uh, in 1980, the man met the moment. And uh, 1980 was that right time for Reagan's optimism and hope for a better future and the policies and strategies he had to implement that to come along with uh, circumstances changing where finally there's a possibility of, of the United States having a better path forward.
0: So, a couple questions. Speaking of policies and strategy, put on your most professorial national security, international relations hat. What is grand strategy? Like, what does the term mean and signify?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question, Marshall. And I'll first say that um, show me ten grand strategy scholars, and I'll give you twenty different definitions of the term. Right? Okay. <laughs> so the you know everyone has their own definitions. It's very contested. For me, uh, it really it comes down to using all elements of national power for a a broad, far-reaching strategic goal. Okay. So it's not just about military power. It's not just about uh, bilateral relations with with one country. So in Reagan's case. Um, His grand strategy was applied to winning the Cold War on peaceful terms, and that, of course, entailed the collapse of Soviet communism, but also meant avoiding the Cold War turning into a hot war, avoiding, avoiding, avoiding nuclear war. And it meant, and this is a key part which doesn't always get get appreciated. But I hope I t- tease out in the book the global expanse of democracy and market uh, economy is kind of the expansion of the free world as well. Uh, so for Reagan, it's not just about. You know, ending the threat from Soviet communism and ending the uh, ending the, the Soviet regime, but also uh, bringing better lives and better systems of government to the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe and and Asia and Latin America as well. So it's a pretty far reaching visionary goal for um, for changing much of the world for a better place uh, to, to a better place, all in service of American American interests. And, you know, we can talk about the details of how he pursued that. Uh, uh, sometimes it was using quite a bit. It was using diplomacy. Uh, sometimes it was using economic instruments. Sometimes it was using information warfare. Sometimes it was his speeches and his, and his rhetoric. And of course, um, the military modernization plays an important role, important role, too.
0: Yeah. Before we get into the specifics, I'd love to get your thoughts on a contradiction when it comes to Reagan. Like, as you note in the introduction, Reagan is not an intellectual. Mm -hmm. And when we're using these terms like grand strategy and you are articulating Reagan's approach, it's very intellectualized, it's very serious. There are different planks. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a particularly partisan statement to say that after Reagan's presidency, Presidents of both parties really struggle with this grand strategy question. You know, George H. W. Mm-hmm. Bush literally has the quote where he says he's not great on the whole vision thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously have President Obama, who I think is near the top of modern presidents when it comes to just pure intellect, writing mm-hmm. ability. That is not a presidency that... Comes up with a strong conception of what its grand strategic approach to the world of the 2010s would be. So, how mm-hmm. is it that Reagan, to your point, is able to both not be an intellectual, mm-hmm. but actually have this conception? What are the necessary ingredients to have there?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, first to, to clarify some terms, you're right. And I say it in the book, he's not an intellectual. Um, but he is a man of ideas uh and this is this is key to understanding his, his grand strategy which is why why I want to stress that and how can i and how how do i distinguish i guess i would think of yeah. intellectual as someone who only inhabits the realm of ideas and is only concerned with uh, you know ideas for, for for their own sake and some of the more you know arcane uh, you know uh, details and minutia of different schools of thought and so on and so forth. Uh, someone who inhabits the world of, uh, of books, which I can your listeners can't see this, but you and I can both see as we're recording this. We're sitting in front of big bookshelves, right? So we're both intellectuals, intellectuals of sort. So that's that's not Reagan. He's a man of ideas, and by man of ideas, I mean this: he framed the Cold War and America's role in it. Around a certain set of ideas. He saw the Cold War as fundamentally a battle of ideas that happened to be a great power competition. And that was a profound strategic reversal from every Cold War president before him. Every Cold War president before him saw the Cold War as primarily a great power standoff. You've got these two rival blocks, the Soviet bloc and the United States, the American bloc, the two world's two most powerful economies, the world's two most powerful militaries, and it's your classic, you know, bipolar. Great power standoff. Oh, and it happens to be a contest of ideas because they're communist and we're and we're and we're capitalist. Reagan reverses that he says, no, this is fundamentally a contest of ideas. And the ideas that he stood for: uh democracy, religious freedom, uh human liberty, market economies, open societies, uh, volunteerism. Those ideas were antithetical to the ideas that animated Soviet communism, uh, and so for him, he was attuned to the power dynamics in the war. Uh, he he knew that you had to balance powers in in, in certain way, but uh, but he assessed the Cold War as fundamentally this is about defeating the idea of Soviet communism, and we'll just use some instruments of national power national power to do so, and that is really key to understanding his his grand strategy o- overall, because you know all previous presidents had saw the Cold, the Soviet Union as something to coexist with and to manage and to contain right that's the strategy containment and reagan comes in with a fundamentally different conception saying, I think that the Soviet Union is weak and brittle and vulnerable, and that with enough pressure and enough pushing, we can crack that system apart, we can defeat that idea. But we need to do it very carefully, because a wounded, cornered, angry bear with 40,000 nuclear warheads, which is what the Soviet Union was at the time, is really dangerous, and that Cold War could quickly turn turn hot. And so that's why part of his ideas was also the need to encourage reformist voices within the Soviet Union, and to negotiate with them, and to the work as much as we could to reduce nuclear uh, arsenals and to end, end the threat of nuclear war. So, you know, some of these things are certainly in some tension with each other. And yet, great grand strategists manage those tensions. They, they lean in on those tensions and those contradictions. And sometimes you emphasize one, sometimes you emphasize the other. But pursuing that final visionary goal of the defeat of Soviet communism, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a great textbook case in a successful grand strategy by a non-intellectual who happened to be a man of ideas.
0: Yeah, thank you for anticipating the what's the difference between an intellectual and a man of ideas question. Yeah, yeah. So many things I want to pick up there. So number one, to your point about the Cold War of the 1980s being about ideas, it seems that, as we're talking about, is the United States in a second Cold War Mm -hmm. with Russia, with China. It seems like the status quo today, putting aside the Cold War or not debate, which is somewhat academic Mm – Now, it seems like we actually are in that great power competition, because other than Putin's rhetoric, it's not as if there's like a global competition between Western liberal democracy and Putin's Russia-centric vision. Of his broader sphere of what he conceives as Russia's world, obviously there is the competition between the U.S. and China and continents such as Africa. But that isn't purely ideological in 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 quite the same way. So, what are the differences between let's say that 1980s period and that description of today? You'd say,
1: yeah. Well, first I will say I I have um, recently come around to saying yes, I do think we are in a new Cold War now. Okay, um, but as soon as I say that, I then have to. Talk about the differences, which is just just what you asked. So I just want to put, put put that out there first. And I, at the end of the day, I think the similarities are uh, more consequential than, than than the differences. But um, but you know, first big difference is the economic interdependence between the United States and China. Uh, uh, we never had this level of economic interdependence with with the Soviet Union during during the first during the first Cold War. And frankly, as I you know, as a Professor of history, I'm not aware of another time in human history where two rival powers, as the United States and China are now, had these deep levels of economic interdependence. It's not just, you know, trading partners, but, you know, so many, uh, so many linkages up, up and down, up and down the supply chain, right? Um, uh, and so. We're in somewhat, we're just in rather uncharted territory, uncharted territory there. Um, the Another difference between the old Cold War and, and the new one is the Soviet Union had the Warsaw Pact, right? So it had its coerced satellites, its vassal states in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, East Germany, uh, divided Germany at the time, Romania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and so on. Um, China doesn't have similar controlled satellites now uh, as as the Soviet Union and the War Warsaw, Warsaw Pact did. And then the nuclear balance was was very different too. you know the Soviets had about 40,000 nuclear warheads. the United States had about 30,000 nuclear warheads at the height of the Cold War. Our arsenals were much, much bigger then. Uh, the The Russian arsenal now is about a tenth that. The American arsenal is is less than a tenth that. The Soviet, uh, the Chinese arsenal is is even a, even a less less than a tenth that. Now, uh, notice as we've been talking here, I've primarily been talking about China because I do think the new Cold War frame fits better with China um, mm-hmm. than the current situation we're in with Russia. But remember, the first Cold War uh, started off as a competition between the United States and Soviet communism and Chinese communism. And so there's more analogies to our current moment, I think, to the 1950s, because in the 1950s, the Soviet Union and communist China were close allies. You know, Soviet Union had sponsored uh, and aided the Chinese communist revolution, the creation of the Chinese communist party. And, you know, they, they partnered in supporting the Korean War and North, you know, North Korea's invasion of South Korea in 1950. Um, they were deeply connected uh, and you know the current the current partnership that we're seeing between China and Russia is the closest it's been since those 1950s uh so uh in that sense the fact that we're looking at you know a partnership between China and Russia today that also does have very close parallels to the first cold war just to an earlier earlier phase in it uh, and of course you know with uh nixon and kissinger's opening to china in in 1972 that's when the united states was able to help peel away china from its partnership with the soviet union and You know, China became an important partner for the United States in the 70s and 80s in helping to counter Soviet power. But again, that only happened after the Sino-Soviet split, after China and Russia had literally gone to war with each other in the 1960s. And so hopes we have today of splitting Putin and Xi Jinping. Look, I would love to see it. but the circumstances are not right yet. Uh, we need to see more tensions between them first before there's a crack that we can that we can try to exploit. So, American policy today, I think, still needs to focus on countering and containing both Russia and China. While we look and wait for an opportunity to perhaps split them apart.
0: You know, it's interesting your description of Reagan's objective as a negotiated surrender of the USSR. Maybe really think about another difference between today end that 80s period because to your point about the warsaw pact mm-hmm. when reagan uses the phrase like the evil empire like empire mm-hmm. is a useful conception of what the soviet union was mm-hmm. um it wasn't just the warsaw pact you always have you know kazakhstan and belarus mm-hmm. and ukraine constituent yeah, ukraine, republics yeah, georgia so it's an, it's it, you can the, another way of summing of the 20th century is it was the, the defeat of global empire. Um, You know, the Soviet Union, and I I can't remember the author, but there's a book called like The Last Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we're looking at our conceptions of Russia, China today, those are nation states. Mm -hmm. Those aren't empires. Nation Mm -hmm. states, aside from devastating wars, Mm -hmm. don't surrender. So Mm -hmm. how should we think of like the differences in how it should conceive anyone trying to think of our grand strategic goals today?
1: Yeah, so I will um, I will push back a little bit there. I mean, first I think you're absolutely right that the Soviet Union was an empire, and when Reagan called them an evil empire, he was widely criticized in the West uh, among you know the liberal intelligentsia and the media and then you know professors like me uh, for calling them evil. It's seen as moralistic, jingoistic, simplistic. The Soviet Union was outraged that he called them that. Not because he used the word evil, but because he called them an empire. Because, you know, communist ideology claims to be anti-imperial. They were saying, oh, we are, you know, we are the answer to capitalist imperialism and capitalist exploitation, and we're not an empire at all. And so for him to say, no, you are an empire, and they were for the reasons you, you just laid out, uh, that's what really struck a nerve in, in in the Kremlin. But today, uh, both with Russia and China, I do think that they're showing uh certainly imperial uh, characteristics. I mean, that's what Putin is trying to do. You want to, you know, see Putin's uh, goal in one sentence uh, or one picture. Uh, take a map of the old Soviet Union and draw a circle around those borders, and that's what Putin's trying to recreate. You know, that's why he invaded Georgia. He sees it as rightly theirs. That's why he invaded Ukraine. He sees it as rightly there. So he is trying to recreate the the borders of the old Soviet empire, or maybe even before that, you know, kind of the 19th century Russian, Russian empire. So he sees himself self-consciously in that imperial world. And then similarly with, with China, I mean, the, the genocide in Xinjiang against the Uyghur Muslims. I mean, uh, uh, you know, China sees uh uh Xinjiang, uh, Xinjiang province as an imperial property. What China has done in Hong Kong in squeezing out democracy there is a classic imperial move. Their efforts to retake control of Taiwan, classic, classic imperialism. Uh, you know, their uh, next scene of these islands in the South China Sea, classic, classic imperial, imperial move. Uh, and their efforts for more political and economic control with their you know Belt and Road initiative. Uh, it doesn't involve You know, formally invading and conquering those territories, but it involves classic methods of imperial control, which is, you know, the debt trap diplomacy where you now uh, basically control Sri Lanka because you have put them in such debt from an ill-conceived port there. So I actually do see some signs of uh, imperial behavior, but coming back around to uh, Reagan's strategy of the negotiated surrender with the with the Soviet system. He wasn't looking for Russia itself to surrender. He just wanted the end of that Soviet system of the idea of Soviet communism. So, so today, I think the closer analogy and it may or may not be realistic, but I think it's worth at least put on the table would be, um, the end of the one party monopoly on power that the chinese communist party has right i mean because that is xi jinping's core goal more than retaking taiwan or anything like that is holding on to that monopoly of power for the chinese communist party uh and um and that is is his claim to legitimacy that is all that that he really fundamentally fundamentally cares about and i think it'd be worth the united states uh challenging that claim yeah. So two last but big questions in our
0: last five minutes here. So um, I'll give you both of them run away with it. So oh, sure. number one, um, it's not just Reagan. You know, it's not just, you know, we Americans who are looking at Reagan's legacies and his policies for lessons. It's mm-hmm. obviously the leadership of Russia and the leadership of China. Mm-hmm. What lessons, and this is very explicitly stated in the Chinese conception, mm-hmm. were taken away from this period, a.k.a. Glasnost and Perestroika weren't great Mm -hmm. ideas if you're in the CCP. Uh, What what do they think about this? And the second question would be just wrap um, on Reagan's thoughts or next steps for folks uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons, because that's also something which I just noticed young people in general feel that's a new era. I'm thinking about MAD and nukes and Putin. Just those two questions.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Boy, big stuff. All right, I'll try to take them. I'll I'll do some top line stuff, and you know, your listeners are free to you know come back on. We'll do a follow up, right? Um, First, uh, one reason why I am comfortable now calling our new uh, era with China and Russia a new Cold War is because that's how China and Russia see it. Um, and they see it in part because both Putin and Xi Jinping have studied carefully the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the first Cold War. Uh, and for them, there's a few lessons they they take away. It's very much a cautionary tale. The first one is don't allow independent religious activity. Um, the Chinese Government Communist Party in particular sees the role of the Catholic Church, of Jewish refuseniks of evangelical Local house church pastors uh, throughout the Soviet Union, behind the Iron Curtain in in the Warsaw Pact countries, have played a very big role in the collapse of communism. and And I think they're right; it, it did. If anything, they may even exaggerate some. Um, so that's why um, Putin has uh, you know, really na- renationalized the Russian Orthodox Church and doesn't allow much any other independent religious activity. And why China has so clamped down on independent religious activity. Uh, another lesson for for Xi Jinping is uh don't lose your ideological zeal this is why he has brought you know Xi Jinping thought back that's why he's kind of revising and updating the cult of Mao if you will this is why Putin also makes appeals to Soviet greatness and to and to Stalin uh is they are worried that their people are losing faith in their authoritarian systems uh and they worry that Gorbachev let the Soviet people lose faith in the system and they did now that's not so much Gorbachev's fault it was the system's fault right right? It was a wicked and rotten system that no one could could keep faith in. But um, this is why uh, this is why Putin and Xi Jinping are willing to downplay economic growth uh, that, you know, for them, they're not materialist. They don't see that as the end all and be all. They're willing to take some economic pain if they can do it in the further uh, of um, creating more loyalty to the system or to the party and keeping that that faith in the cause. Um, So that those are those are other lessons. We could talk more about others, but I want to come to the nuclear one. Uh, The nuclear question now, it's really interesting because after the the Cold War, even though the United States didn't eliminate all of our nuclear weapons entirely, we have over the last three decades slashed our nuclear arsenal to about one-tenth the size that it was in the Cold War. Uh, We're now down to about maybe – 2,000 uh, strategic warheads, uh, and then you know some tactical nukes as well. And we had, uh, I want to say maybe 30,000 at the at the height, height of the Cold War. So you know one one fifteenth now, right? Just a dramatic cutting of, um, and, and nuclear weapons just have not played a significant role at all in American strategy since then. They weren't a part of the War on Terror. They weren't a part of the Iraq War, Afghanistan, so on and so forth. But they are really really, we are now realizing anew the importance of a strong nuclear deterrent. We desperately need to upgrade our arsenal. We're still using. Missiles designed in the 1970s, right? The the, the minute, Minuteman three. Um uh, and similar with our, uh, most of our, our, our other warheads are older than you, older older, older than me. Um, uh, and China is on a massive nuclear modernization and expansion, and, and Putin is as, as well. But we also need to recover uh, the doctrines and ways of thinking about these things strategically. Uh, you know, we can't just dust off the 1960s uh, mutual assured destruction playbook. But finally, going back to the Reagan legacy, uh, he had a very sophisticated nuclear strategy, which you know, if I were to you know distill it down, it was build up so we can build down, right? He wanted to eliminate all nuclear weapons, but before he could get there, he first needed to restore the strength of the American arsenal because he wanted to eliminate the threat that uh, the, that uh, that those weapons had to counter, of course, so, Soviet Soviet communism. And this is why he pursued his Strategic Defense Initiative, missile defense. Um, And it was ridiculed at the time, but it played a key role in forcing Gorbachev to come back to the negotiating table. And frankly, those ideas and those technologies are playing a very key role right now. When you look at the missile defenses that Israel is using, when you look at the missile defenses Ukraine is using, when you look at the missile defenses the United States is deploying against the Iranian and North Korean nuclear threats, we have Reagan to to thank for that. But they are not going to be adequate against the Russian and Chinese nuclear arsenals. And that's where we need to do um, some really uh, uh, aggressive and sophisticated thinking, and put some uh, some new systems in place as well.
0: That is an excellent place to leave it. The book is the Peacemaker, and I just want to say I read a lot of these presidential biographies. This was incredibly well written and actually like very compelling and interesting, and not just dry history. So I cannot recommend it enough. Everyone, it's available in our bookshop or everywhere else you can find your books. Thank you very much, Marshall. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for a lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.